when Satan comes and at the temptation offers Jesus the kingdoms of the world, that's not disputed. It's a legitimate offer because he is, quote, the God of this world, small g. He is the one who has authority over this world. And as we move through time, he's going to tighten his control over the world and ultimately embody his control in his servant, whom we will study later on, known as the Antichrist. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the Revelation, we were introduced last week to the seven-sealed scroll as we moved into chapter 5. Before we begin to unseal the scroll, however, Jesus, through the Apostle John, addresses in verses 8 through 14 a great deal of information, including our introduction to the 24 elders, the music that is sung, and the instruments that are played, and the beauty of the prayers of believers. And all of this is just in one verse. So let's rejoin Dr. Brogy as he begins his message, The Song Before the Seals. Take God's Word with you this morning and turn to the Revelation chapter 5. Revelation 5. It's called the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Not the Revelation of John, but this book is called the Revelation of Jesus. And it's given to the Apostle John who gives it to us, his bondservants. And among the many things that God writes about in this book, He gives us descriptions of what heaven is like. And there's a lot of misinformation about heaven. If I were to do a course on heaven and a systematic theology, I would certainly include Revelation chapters 4 and 5. But unfortunately, many today have abandoned what the truth of Scripture says for their own fantasies, and many evangelicals are gobbling them up. Last time, uh, we discussed the fact that wherever you go in the world, people have an expectation, a hope, be it real or false. There's a hope that there's life beyond the grave. And that's not by accident because the Scripture says God has written eternity into our hearts. But just because people have an expectation of the afterlife, it may not be an accurate expectation. We live in a day of syncretism where all religions are viewed equally, and so many of them are blended together. If you're a Hindu and the third largest religion of the world, a religion that is being widespread through America through yoga, as we studied recently on a Wednesday night, the Hindu holy book, the Vedas, among others, tells us that when a person dies, they are reincarnated. They're born again, and they come back possibly as an insect and as an animal, as a person, depending on their karma. And your karma is basically what you do in life, that everything you do in life determines what you will be in the next reincarnated state. And the goal of a Hindu is to break ultimately that channel of reincarnation and to reach what they call moksha, oneness with God. Or if you are a Muslim, as we studied last Wednesday night, a member of the second largest religion of the world, then your concept of heaven comes from the Quran. And so those men who flew those airplanes into the World Trade Centers read these words from the Prophet Muhammad. There are six things with Allah for the martyr. He is forgiven with the first flow of blood he suffers. He has shown his place in paradise. 
He is protected from punishment in the grave, secured from the greatest terror. The crown of dignity is placed upon his head. He is married to 72 wives, and he may intercede for 70 of his close relatives. Still others pull their concept of heaven from the Book of Mormon or the Pearl of Great Price. And so if a Mormon shows up at your door, they may tell you, I believe that God lives on the planet Kolob, and that I believe that God has a plan for, for all of us, and I believe that that plan involves me getting my own planet someday. Or if you're a member of the Christian science movement, kind of like grape nuts, there's no grape, there's no nuts, Christian science, there's no Christianity, and there's no science to it. But Mary Baker Eddy taught that you could ultimately reach a perfect state of mind. And then there are born-again Christians who are gobbling up on evangelical presses books about heaven, many which are grossly inaccurate. One of the most popular one is Heaven is for Real, and it's the story of Colton Burbo, who at the age of four dies from a bursic appendix and then supposedly comes back and tells his dad, who's a physician, all that happened, and his dad writes a book on it. And evangelical churches across America study it every year. There's DVD series. There's workbooks that go with it. And evangelical presses are happy to print these things because it makes them wealthy and it makes the author wealthy. But they are as dangerous as they are seductive when they go beyond the realm of Scripture. And so we live in a day of shallow Christianity. We no longer believe in Scripture alone. And so many evangelicals are not all that different from Roman Catholics in that they have some writing beyond the Scripture that they think is authoritative. But when we come to the end of this book that primarily deals with heaven, God warns that anyone who adds or subtracts to this book will have their part removed from the tree of life. On one occasion, Jesus was having a dialogue with Nicodemus about salvation in heaven. And He said to him in John 3.13, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He's reminding Nicodemus that he speaks with absolute authority, that he's uniquely qualified to speak about heaven. He says, paraphrase, no one has gone into heaven in return, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. Recently on a national talk show that unfortunately our own radio station aired, sometimes we don't know what's going to be said. Uh, they were talking about these books that are being written and endorsing them as a legitimate means to discover heaven. And the argument of the talk show host and the one he was interviewing, well, Paul went to heaven and came back. John went to heaven and came back. Why can't someone today come to heaven and come back and tell it? Because those men are apostles. And to be an apostle you had to have been hand-selected by Jesus Christ. You had to have seen Him in His resurrected body. And if those first two things were true, then you would do the signs, wonders, and miracles that only an apostle could do. So there's a lot of false teaching in our day, and it's important that we renew our minds in this day of 20-minute sermons, in this day of a lot of sloppy gush that's being dealt from pulpits, that has very little to do with the truth of the Word of God, but it brings the people in. 
So gird up your minds for action as we read our text this morning. I want to begin in verse 8 where we left off last time of Revelation chapter 5. Follow along when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard them saying to him who sits on the throne and the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Now, for those of us who are new, let me bring you into the context of where we are. We've learned from Revelation 1-7 that the theme of this book is that He is coming with the clouds. It's the return of Jesus from heaven. And God's divine outline for this book is found in Revelation 1 and verse 19. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, that's the past. Write the things which are, that's the present. The things which will take place after these things, that's the future. God gave us a divine outline so we could not misrepresent or potentially misinterpret this book, the things that were, that you have seen. And so in chapter 1, he writes what he had seen of that glorified Christ in heaven, and he records the vision for us. Then he writes about the things that are, things that were present in his day. And he writes of seven churches that in many ways typify churches across the world in every time frame of church history. There are lessons that we can learn from the seven churches that are unending. That's the present. And then the things metatata, after these things, that is the future. So beginning in chapter 4, we move into the futuristic section of the book of the Revelation. Notice how chapter 4 opens. Uh, There is an open door, which we saw as a picture of the rapture, twice over, After these things, that's the same two words, metatata, of the last three words in John 1.19. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place. Metatata. After these things. Now, if you remember from last time, this is a picture of the rapture of the church. And it's not by accident that he finds these 24 elders in heaven. And we did a study on the number 24, that it is a representative number of a large host of people. And I illustrated that for you from the Word of God. And so these are. 24 elders who represent the church that has been taken into heaven. And so it's not by accident that the seven churches of chapters 2 and 3 are never mentioned again. And the next time we see the church is when it comes back in glory with the Lord Jesus in Revelation 19. And so 4 and 5 really give us a scene that is unfolding. Uh, It's really a precursor to the seals to come. And it's a precursor 
to the four riders of the apocalypse because God is setting the stage for judgment as it's going to fall. And when you come to chapter 6, things will dramatically change in the Revelation all the way through the 19th chapter. Describing that seven-year time frame, Jesus said, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. You do not want to be left behind and miss the rapture of the church. And while it is entirely possible to miss the rapture because you're not saved, it is absolutely impossible to miss the second coming of Christ. There are two distinctly different events. The rapture is one event when Christ comes to translate His people into His heaven. We will meet Him in the clouds. The second coming, every eye will see Him. He will plant His feet on the Mount of Olives as this slide shows the comparison between the two. He comes first for His church. He comes back at the second coming with His church. The rapture, He takes us to heaven. It's called the day of Christ in the Bible. The second coming, He brings us to the earth where we will rule and reign with Him. And that's called the day of the Lord, which is a long period of time that's pictured in the Word of God. So chapter 5 brings us into this courtroom. Notice, I saw in the right hand of Him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. As you come into chapter 5, you come into a majestic courtroom. It's not by accident that today we even model our courtrooms in a majestic way. They're usually built in a fine, with fine wood and magnificent seating and everything else. I was recently in a, a federal court in Washington, D.C., where my son is clerking. I thought, man, this room is breathtaking. Well, that's nothing compared to the room that we will be in. Remember, this is a future event. When you come to chapters 4 and 5, you are there. If today you are born again, what you are reading from chapter 4 and 5, you are seeing the church who is in heaven. You'll be a part of this group that is doing these various activities in this chapter. And you will see Jesus is the center of it all. I saw on the right hand of Him, we identified that one sitting as being God the Father. He is specifically identified in the fourth chapter. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. Now we saw that this is no book like we think of a book today, what we call a codex, a book like you have in your lap this morning that's bound and has numerous pages. Literally it's a scroll as indicated there in the margin of the New American Standard. And it's no ordinary scroll. Unlike most scrolls, it's written on the front side and the back side, and it's sealed with seven seals. And I illustrated for you both from the culture of the day and even from the Old Testament that this is what we would call a last will and testament, a very special document, but no ordinary last will and testament. This is indeed the title deed to the earth, and it's a scroll sealed up with seven seals. And I saw, verse 2, a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Every first century reader would know that this seven-sealed scroll was a last will and testament, that it was a title deed. And this strong angel is asking for someone to claim the title deed to the earth. And verse 3 tells us that with a loud voice, 
He tells us, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. What he says echoes throughout the universe, throughout the heavens, throughout the earth below, even in hell beneath. Everyone hears this voice, and I can imagine the explanations the world will come up. Aliens are speaking to us. Who knows what they'll be saying? But across the universe is asked the question, who is worthy? And this silence is broken by John, who begins to weep. Notice verse 4, then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. Not an angel in heaven, there was not a Christian on earth, not a prophet, not an apostle, no one alive, no one in heaven, no one on earth was worthy to open, much less look into the book. And God is emphasizing to underscore that there is only one who is worthy. And so in verse 5, one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Jesus is the one described in chapter 1 as the preexistent sovereign Lord of the universe. He alone is worthy to open this book. The title deed is in the right hand of the Father. Now, God doesn't literally have a hand. As Mormons teach, they say, well, God has a human body. In fact, the Mormons' view of the virgin birth is that the Father came down and had a relationship with Mary, and that's how Jesus was conceived. My friend, that is sheer heresy. Every major doctrine that is taught in Christianity, they deny. Don't think that they are Christians, though they call themselves the Latter-day Saints of Jesus Christ. They need to hear the loving grace of God through Jesus. God the Father is anthropomorphized. Many times in Scripture, He has eyes that see to Him. God doesn't literally have eyes. God is spirit. But God will often attribute human characteristics to Himself so we can understand Him. There was a time when Jesus was spirit, but He is now incarnated in human flesh, and we will meet Him in that way, for He is ever in His glorified body. But the Father, in essence, hands the title deed to the Son who is standing at His right side, and He is given the opportunity to open this book. Now, understand, God's original intention was for Adam and Eve to rule and to reign over this earth, but Adam and Eve lost that through their disobedience, such that when Satan comes and at the temptation offers Jesus the kingdoms of the world, that's not disputed. It's a legitimate offer because he is, quote, the God of this world, small g. He is the one who has authority over this world. And as we move through time, He's going to tighten His control over the world and ultimately embody His control in His servant, whom we will study later on, known as the Antichrist. But the Lord Jesus, the second Adam from above, has paid the price so that He might indeed redeem the creation that He purchased with His own life. Now, that brings us to verse 8. If you weren't here last time for the message, you might want to go back, and it's at searchthescriptures.org. You can download it in your phone and listen to it, but it will be helpful to you as you work through the revelation. You can see this morning, this is the song before the seals. There's seven seals that are going to be opened. Six of them are listed in chapter 6, but this is the song before the seals. It's a precursor of what is going to happen. If you're using your note-taking outline, we want to begin with the song of the creatures 
and the elders. The song of the creatures and elders. Notice verse 8. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures. Now, the old King James renders it the four beasts, though the new King James, virtually like every other English translation, refers to it as the four living creatures. These are not hideous beasts like some Godzilla-like person. And this is not, for that matter, the beast, the Antichrist. is an entirely different Greek word used to describe him. There's about 30 titles that are given to the Antichrist, and one is he's called the beast. Now, this is the word zoe. We get our word zoology. It speaks of life. These are the four living creatures. We'll study them in more detail later on, but we've already noted them from the prophet Ezekiel, the first chapter. They are in that realm of angelic beings known as cherubim. And cherubim, like angels, can change their appearance at will. An angel can come. We may have an angel. We have angels here this morning. They're in the invisible realm. They're worshiping with us. Our congregation's a lot bigger than you realize because Paul tells us that every time the church worships, angels come and they watch. They're watching us this morning. They're watching you worship. Not only is the Lord God watching, angels are watching. But lay that aside, there could be an angel sitting right next to you. The Bible says you can entertain an angel unaware. You say, that doesn't look like an angel. That looks like a demon to me. (laughs) Well, listen, uh, angels can change their form. They can take on human appearance, as can the cherubim. They can change their appearance. God tells us in Ephesians 6 that angels are organized and ranked, and we studied that in Daniel chapter 10. We saw an illustration of that. And one of the highest order of angels are the cherubim. We'll study them further when we come to the 15th chapter. The cherubim are those who announce the verdict, among other things they do, of God's judgment. They will actually give the seven bowls to seven angels to distribute judgment on the earth. Now notice, and when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Again, if you were not here for our message in chapter 4, we did a very careful study of the 24 elders, and it's actually very important to the argument for a pre-tribulational rapture. There are some Christians who think we'll be here for the tribulation, and so they have to make these 24 elders some other group of people. They say, well, these 24 elders are 24 angels. No, they are distinguished from angels in the 4th, 5th, 6th, and 7th chapter. Some would say these 24 elders are tribulation saints, people saved during the tribulation. No, in the seventh chapter, they're distinguished from tribulation saints. Every time you see the word saint in the Revelation, don't think church saints. There's two kinds of saints. There's church saints, those saved during the church age from Pentecost to the rapture, and there's tribulation saints, those saved during that seven-year period. Some say, well, these are members of, uh, they represent Israel. No, they don't represent Israel. One of the functions we're going to learn of the great tribulation is to bring the Jewish people to faith. They're going to look on Him whom they have pierced. They're going to believe that Yeshua Hamasiach is the King, He's the Messiah, He's the Savior of the world. They're going to recognize that. That's one of the purposes of the tribulation. No, these are elders of the church, representative of the entire body of Christ. And so the promise that Jesus made, for instance, in Revelation chapter 3, that we as His people would be taken out of that tribulation that would come upon the whole world. There's never, ever, ever been a time in human history, not even in the great world 
wars, where there has been tribulation on the whole earth. But there is a day that is going to come that is going to encompass every square inch of the planet, every nation on the world. And God promises through His Son that He will remove His people from that time. And so what you find here are these 24 elders who we have seen are clothed in white garments. That's the arraignment that God gives born-again Christians in heaven. They are given crowns. That's the reward that we are given. And they sit on thrones because one of the things that you will do is you will rule and reign with Jesus. So they're representative of those who've come out of the church age. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Before we're done with Revelation, we're going to learn that there are many things that God's people are doing in heaven and will do throughout all of eternity. And one of the things that we will do is we will worship the Lord. You know, when you're born again, when you've been made a new creature in Christ, there's something in your heart that just reaches out and wants to praise the Lord if you're in fellowship with God. Now, you may have come here this morning and you thought, boy, these people are a little excited. They even clapped after, you know, one of the hymns and got, you know. Um, listen, that's what your heart does when you are born again. There's a new proclivity for worship. Listen, when you get to heaven, you can multiply the excitement that you might know in a place like this 10,000 times, 10,000 times, because in your glorified, resurrected body, you will worship God like you have never done before. And so they fall down before the Lamb. What's the first thing you're going to do when you meet Jesus in heaven? Some people think, well, I'll enter in, I'll give him a big hug. Some people think I'll dance before Jesus or I'll give him a high five. You won't do any of those things. You will fall down at his feet and you will worship him. And we will see in a moment that you will not be silent. Praise is about ready to erupt. Notice further the elders representing the body. They are holding, the Bible says, the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp. You say, I knew it. <laughs> That's what's going to happen. We're going to be sitting on clouds in heaven strumming harps. Well, people get that idea, unfortunately, from this verse. But there's no clouds here. In fact, the streets are made out of gold in heaven. And the throne room itself is compared to a sea of glass like crystal, as we studied in the fourth chapter. So jettison the cloud concept, all right? Not to mention that the Father's house, called also the New Jerusalem, paradise, many names, heaven, it will literally someday come out of heaven, and God is going to place it on a brand new heaven, come down through a new heaven onto a new earth. It becomes the capital city of a brand new planet, earth, and we'll call the whole ball of wax, I suppose, heaven. And so people ask me, do I believe in global warming? Well, I'm not sure I believe in global warming, but I do believe in a global meltdown because God tells us this current heaven and earth, He's going to burn with fire, going to totally destroy it and make a brand new place. And so notice, here are God's people. They are in heaven, and we're going to see them singing. They're going to sing to the Lord. As some of you, it looks like you have lockjaw on Sunday morning. Look, you may not have a good voice. You say, well, you know, I feel like I have a frog in my throat. Well, some of you sound like a frog with a man in your throat. But listen, it doesn't matter. It doesn't say make a 
good noise, make a joyful noise. You just make the best noise you can make for Jesus. That's a command of Scripture. We are called to make a joyful noise before the Lord. It's all part of the worship experience, which in turn allows us to be conformed into the image of Christ. To listen again to today's message, The Song Before the Seals, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV13. Join us again tomorrow as we continue our study in the Revelation and Search the Scriptures.